0: Our topic this morning is Genesis and Biblical Discernment. We talk about that because a lot of churches seem to ignore the book of Genesis. It's not relevant. It's not important. It's secondary doctrine. But folks, I'm going to show you today, most all our Christian doctrines come out of the first chapters of Genesis. And the gospel falls if we don't believe the first chapters of Genesis. So I'm going to go ahead and get started here. Genesis and Biblical Discernment. And we need to define what we mean by discernment. And we can go to dictionaries and get definitions, but I like my definitions from the Bible. Now, our definition is this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Test all things, hold fast what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now, this is going to be kind of a theme through here. So I want to organize this so we have a complete understanding of this. What that means is we should examine everything. Cling to those things that are good and shun those things that are evil. Now I'd like to go into each one of these components here so we get a clear understanding before we go any further. Examine everything. Means the desire of every Christian should be to know the truth and be able to proclaim it with authority. We can't do that if we don't know it. We should distinguish between truth and false doctrines. And we should let no one Deceive us. That's a very important concept, deception. I'd like to do an illustration of this, deception. Now, I, Pastor, may I call everybody a name here? <laughs> okay, so if you don't like the name I call you, whose fault is it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. I've watched enough politicians, I don't take the blame for anything. <laughs> but if look at all you out there. All of you this morning, you know what you are? You're a bunch of knock-kneed Creatures. What are you going about that? I just called you a knock-kneed creature. Well, Mike, we're in church and we have to behave. But as soon as you step outside those doors, we're going to get you. <laughs> Actually, being knock-kneed is a good thing. It means your upper leg bones slants in about nine degrees this way. It's called our carrying angle. So by slanting in nine degrees, every time we take our step, it puts our foot right underneath our body so we can walk a straight line. If we were not knock-kneed, our leg bones went straight up and down. In order to keep our balance every time we took a step, we'd have to walk a little bit like that. Now, who walks like that? Eights and football players. (laughs) I made that statement once, and there were two professional football players in the audience. They stood up, and I did what I had to do because they looked bigger than me. I repented. (laughs) But if I was to stand here this morning and call you names, you would know that. If I was to stand here this morning and ridicule you, you'd know that. But if I was to stand here this morning and deceive you, you may never know that unless you know the truth. Do not be deceived. Test all things against God's Word. We're to cling to those things that are good. In other words, Scripture has to be our standard. Not our feelings, emotions, or any human imagination, or any biology textbook. Scripture is our standard. We need to safeguard that Scripture by knowing how to defend it. It's called apologetics. That does not mean we go out there and apologize. It comes from the Greek. Apologia means we have a verbal defense for what we believe, and that is a mandate to do from God. 1 Peter 3.15 says we're to have a ready answer always for the hope that's within us. Jude 3. What chapter? There's only one chapter, just checking, just checking. See, if he has been in there lately. Jude 3 says we are contend for the faith. That word contend is a very strong word. It's where we get our word agonize. We're told to agonize over our faith. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, we're told to bring down all strongholds and everything that exalts against the knowledge of God. And 2 Timothy 2.15 says we're to study to show ourselves approved. So this is a mandate that all Christians should not only know, but be able to practice apologetics. Then we're told to shun those things that are evil. Typical example, you got two $1 bills, one of them is counterfeit. How will you know which one is counterfeit? You must know what the real one looks like. We must know the truth, or people will come into your lives and deceive you with false doctrines. Do not be deceived. Now, anybody seen that warning label? Yes. Don't drink this, or you're going to get a tremendous bellyache. How about that one? How how many people see that one as a challenge? (laughs) Yes. And then, don't touch this, you're going to get an amazing surprise. And one for Florida, don't let your dogs out. (laughs) And the one I like, Little Hope Baptist Church. (laughs) Well, except for the last one there, these are all signs, warning signs, to protect us physically from physical harm. But this book, ladies and gentlemen, has warning signs in it all throughout to protect us spiritually. And one of those warning signs comes right out of Psalm 11.3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our foundations come out of the chap- first chapters of Genesis. Warnings, Colossians two eight. Beware, lest any man spoil you through the philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. In other words, follow Jesus Christ, not man's wisdom. There's a warning. People are going to come in and try to deceive you with false philosophies. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. What kind of a warning is that? Well, that warning takes us back to the book of Genesis. And what it tells us is this. The tactics Satan is going to use on you are the same tactics he used in the Garden of Eden. Why? Because they were his greatest weapon of all time. I call them the three Ds. Deception, doubt, and denial. It works better than physical persecution. Satan deceived Eve. Oh, Eve, that's not what God really said. Let me tell you what he said. You know, I see that happening in our Christian universities. That's not what Genesis means, says our professors. Let me tell you what it means. I've got the degrees. It doesn't really mean what it says there. It doesn't mean six days. It must mean millions of years. Isn't that exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden? Then Eve, Adam and Eve harbored doubts. And then we have the denial of God's word. Sin enters creation. And because of that, we have death. Deception, doubt, and denial. So I want to do a little lesson in discernment. Let's talk about the issue of time. This seems to be a great controversy in the church. It shouldn't be, because God's word is so plain and easy to read. But we're going to go through this, the issue of time. And before we get there, we're going to do a college word, a big word, called hermeneutics. What in the world does that mean? It is the methods for interpreting the Bibles, how we understand written language. And there are certain rules we're going to use here. Number one, we will keep God's word in the context he gave it to us. We will not change it or add anything to it. Now, how many have had a course in hermeneutics? Okay, good, good. So I have to be somewhat honest here. (laughs) I'm just going to make this real easy. We're going to go through five rules. One is context. One is the explicit constrains the explicit or the implicit. What does that mean? If something is explicitly stated as a higher priority than something you might imply it means, then the purpose of communication, what is the purpose? To convey an understandable idea? Then the interpretation must be based on the author's intent of meaning and not our intent. And finally, be sensitive to the type of language or genre. The Bible's written in many different formats. We've got parables. We have poetry. We have narrative history. We have figures of speech. Be sensitive to the type of language you're reading for help with the interpretation. So those would be the five rules we go by. Does that make this real easy. You probably spent semesters doing this. You could have learned it in 20 minutes. Okay, let's take a look at Scripture here. When I read Genesis chapter 1, I read first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Let's apply the rules of hermeneutics there. What word did God use for time here? Day. You know, he could have chosen other words. If it meant long periods of time, he could have chosen other words in Hebrew, like olam. Which means a long and definite period of time. He could have chosen those. But he specifically chose the word day. And he defined the word day there very clearly. You know, the first use of the word day in Genesis 1-3 says, the light portion is the day. He clearly defined it that way. Then he says a day can mean an evening and morning. What more words do we need? He clearly defined the day. Nowhere does he use millions of years, folks. And then he uses a number with the word day. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Is that important? It might be here. Does anybody know how many times in the Old Testament God uses a number at the word day? I'm looking for someone. Oh, yes, that group right over there. I see it right there. I see it right there. You were thinking 410, weren't you? Yes, you were. 410. (laughs) Yes, exactly right. 410 (laughs) times in the Old Testament God puts a number at the word day. And every time it means a day, never a long period of time. Is there any wonder what God meant here? But you know what we're hearing in our universities? That's not what God really intended it to mean. I've got the degrees. It really means millions of years. And then God defined his days, evening and morning, first day, evening and morning, second day, evening and morning, third day. Context again, folks. Everywhere in the Old Testament, we see the phrases evening and morning. Even when the word day is not there, guess what it means? Always a day. God made this very emphatic. There should be no discussion on this. That God's days were literal days, 24-hour periods. Now, can I get a little harder here? That's been pretty easy. Can I have your permission to get a little harder? Good, good, good. It doesn't matter what you say, but that was okay. (laughs) How many of you out there believe the Ten Commandments? I don't know why. They're pretty old, aren't they? I mean, they're thousands of years old. We've learned all sorts of new things. So you still believe what they have to say? Okay, how about this one then? Who wrote them, God or Charlton Heston? (laughs) Thank you. You mean God wrote those down, okay? But now if we were to open up the book of Exodus and read the Ten Commandments, do you think you could understand them? Okay, good, good. Usually I get some doubt about that. That means we haven't been there in a while. Yes, we can understand them. Let's go to Exodus 20, 11. So you believe God wrote these down on the tablets himself. And in Exodus 20, 11, here's what God wrote down. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. What does it say there? Six days. Folks, this is scripture supporting scripture. Exodus 20, verse 11 says, it says exactly what Genesis chapter 1 says. Six days. Do we need more evidence? Unfortunately, our college students going to Christian universities need this kind of evidence and more. Because they're being deceived by the Christian university professors. Who refuse to believe that God can create everything in six days. See, incidentally, this was a tactic I used. Notice I asked a series of questions. kind of In legal terms, it's called leading the witness. I watch Matlock. Literal days. Now, how about we get a little harder here? Good, good, good. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross? But how many believe He rose again on the third day? Now, why do you believe that? You did not see it happen, did you? Why do you believe it? It's in Scripture, right. But did you know, according to all known science, You cannot be dead for three days and come back to life. So are you willing to go against known science and still believe the resurrection? Yes, Yes, we are. There's where we have the contradiction in the churches. They'll believe the resurrection even though it goes against known science, but they refuse to believe our God created everything in six literal days. And the world sees this contradiction. And they say, why should I believe the Bible when you don't? The church has become a stumbling block for Jesus, for people accepting Jesus Christ. Now, is it okay if I take a little interpretation of the Bible here for a moment? Okay, let's take a look at the exact order the Bible reads. It starts off with, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says in Genesis 131, his creation was perfect. Well, Mike, I only read the words very good there. Does that mean perfect? Yes, it does. In Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 4, it says the works of God are perfect. Creation was the works of God. They are perfect. And then comes the fall, and then comes death. That is the exact order the Bible reads. Now, let's change the story. Let's add in millions of years and see what it does to the Bible. We have creation going on for millions and millions of years. Finally, along come Adam and Eve, then comes the fall. The question now is, what was going on for those millions of years before Adam and Eve and the fall? Dead things. Death. That's what the fossil record is. It's a record of dead things. A belief in millions of years is a belief in death before sin. That undermines the entire foundation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does this issue matter? I'll give you the technical term. You betcha. <laughs> so the gospel. Sin was not the cause of death. Then why did Jesus have to go to the cross? It's hard to answer now, isn't it? Then Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. What does God's very good mean? Millions of years of death, decay, and disease, or does it mean perfect? See, millions of years distorts the very word of God. It distorts his character, because now he's calling death and disease, including cancer, very good. That's not the God I see in the Bible. Now, did God use evolution? Let's take care of that one right now. How many like logic here? Anybody like logic? Good? Yeah. Okay, let me I didn't get enough hands. Logic is a characteristic of God. It comes from God. How many like logic? I'm a good salesperson here, good marketing. (laughs) We have laws of logic. One of the laws of logic is called the law of non-contradiction. What that law says is two opposites, both can't be true at the same time and place. In other words, you cannot be there physically and not there physically at the same time. So let's compare and contrast the order the Bible says everything was created against what evolution teaches as the order everything evolved. And we read through there, we see that God created the earth on day one and the stars on day four. But evolutionists teach stars came first, then the earth. Are they opposite order? Can they both be true then? No, they can't. Only one of them can be true. The Bible teaches God created the birds on day five and the reptiles, land animals, on day six. Evolution teaches reptiles were first and they evolved into birds. Those are opposites. The Bible teaches God formed this earth out of a watery mass. Evolution teaches it started with a hot fireball. Both can't be true. The Bible teaches land plants were here first, then came the sun. Evolution teaches the sun was here first, then land plants. This is a big problem for people who believe in millions of years. Each day was a long period of time. That means we had land plants with no sun for millions of years. What did we just do to the whole process of photosynthesis? And finally, the Bible teaches man was here first, then came death. Evolution teaches millions of years of death, then came man. These two are opposite, folks. There's only two ways we could have gotten here. Either we evolved or we were created. And since these two are opposites, folks, what that means is one of them is right, the other one is wrong. And there is no mixing them. See, Genesis is the foundation. It's the foundation for almost every one of our Christian doctrines. The sanctity and value of human life. Marriage. See, if you don't believe the first three chapters of Genesis, how do you define marriage? You have nothing to fall back on except what the world thinks. Whatever you want. The definition of marriage is in the first three chapters. Why we die. Why we need a savior. Why there's suffering. Why there's evil in the world. All those come out of the first chapters of Genesis. And also, why Jesus had to go to the cross, the first three chapters of Genesis. You take away Genesis, we have no foundation for what we believe anymore. This is not a secondary doctrine. Don't let people deceive you with that. This is a very important doctrine. Now, this country's been through a lot of wars, haven't we? Been through a lot of wars. Starting with our war for independence, You know, in the war for independence, we lost about 25,000 lives. That was a pretty large percentage of the population then. We had our own civil war, a horrible war. More people died in our civil war than any war in history. About 700,000 lost their lives. We had World War I. We were only in that little less than a year and a half, and we lost over 100,000 Americans. We had World War II, tragic war. We lost over 400,000 Americans. The total dead for that war was over 50 million people from World War II. We had the Korean War, sometimes called the Forgotten War. How can you forget 36,000 Americans that lost their lives? The Vietnam War, over 58,000 lost their lives. We survived all those wars, not without damage, but we came through all those wars. But today, America's in the greatest war she's ever been in. It is not a war being fought with guns and bombs. It is a war for the very heart and soul of this nation. If we lose this war, folks, we lose America. That's what's at stake right now. The problem here is the atheists understand this battle better than most churches. Let me read to you what the atheists understand. While the churches are trying to ignore the book of Genesis, our college professors have compromised it. Here's what the atheists know. And the creations have also shown irrefutably that those liberal and neo Orthodox Christians who regard the creation stories as myths or allegories are undermining the rest of Scripture. Hadn't that been what we've been showing here? But their churches don't seem to understand it. Our college professors don't care. And then he goes on to say this For if there's no Adam, there's no fall. If there's no fall, there's no hell. If there's no hell, there's no need of Jesus, the second Adam incarnate Savior, crucified and risen. As a result, the whole biblical system of salvation collapses. Then he concludes, evolution thus becomes the most potent weapon for destroying the Christian faith. How can we compromise with a philosophy like this? This is what our students are going through, not only in public school, but in Christian schools. They're being taught forms of evolutionism in many Christian schools today. Let me show you what happens when our children go to public school. They're being taught a worldview that is counter to the Bible. They're being evolutionized day after day after day. And we're losing because of that. They're being taught something called the Big Bang. About 13 and a half years ago, billion years ago, something exploded. And from that explosion came all the stars, all the galaxies, all the planets, and you. That should make you feel good for the day. You're in a product of an explosion. <laughs> but let me show you what they don't teach. They don't teach to ask questions like this. Where did the matter come from to create the Big Bang? Because you can't have something go bang until you have something there that can go bang. That's just common sense. And we know from good science and logic, from nothing, nothing comes. The universe could not have created itself, and it cannot be eternal because that violates the laws of science. The only possible mechanism for where this universe came from, folks, is in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. That is the only logical and scientific answer for having a universe. They don't teach questions like what caused it to explode. They don't teach about the problems with the Big Bang, like the missing antimatter, not enough exploded stars, supernovas. Matter of fact, in our own galaxy, we only find enough exploded stars for about 6,000 years. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, existence of comets. What are comets? Big, dirty ice cubes out there. That's basically what they are, small core, big, dirty ice cubes. Every time they go around their sun, they lose some of their mass. If our, galaxy, if our solar system's four and a half billion years old, all those comets would have been gone a long time ago. So they make up all kinds of explanations that nobody can observe. Stars don't form by naturalistic processes. We know that in physics, but then, yeah, in our textbooks, they say they're forming all the time. Folks, that violates our science right there. Stars do not form by naturalistic processes. No one's ever seen one form. The origin of galaxies is nothing but speculation. See, what they're teaching in our schools today is evolutionism and not science. They talk about the origin of life, how life originated by naturalistic processes about 3.5 billion years ago. But here's what they don't teach. That the origin of life, the whole idea is nothing but speculation. There's no science behind it. Scientists are unable to create even a single biological protein. We don't even have to talk about things like DNA, RNA, organelles, and ribosomes. How many got excited when I said words like that? Yes, we don't have to talk about that. When I went to NASA and talked in front of their scientists, all they talked about was the protein, and they lost the argument. Just the protein. Because our best scientists can't even create one single small biological protein. We can't figure it out, folks. They don't tell us that. One cell, and you have about 60 trillion of these in your body, one cell's more complex than any machine mankind's ever made. They don't talk about the fact that life can't start in the presence of oxygen. Yes, we need oxygen to survive, but at the molecular level, oxygen destroys molecular bonds, so life could never start if there was oxygen in the atmosphere. So they change the rules, say we didn't have oxygen in the beginning, but life can't start without oxygen either. Because <coughs> If you take all the oxygen away, folks, you also have to take the ozone away because it's made out of oxygen, O3. You know what happens when you take the ozone away? I'm going to give you the technical term. We become instant crispy critters (laughs) because the the rays of that sun will come down and fry everything. Nothing can survive. So we can't have life start with oxygen. can't have it start without oxygen. So now they change their story again. Say life started way down deep in the oceans, way down there, folks. But you know, life can't start in water either. Water is one of the worst places in the universe for life to begin because there's a process called hydrolysis. Hydro means water. Hydrolysis literally means water splitting. <clears throat> as soon as any of these <clears throat> proteins started to assemble, within a matter of weeks, they'd have all been decomposed. Water decomposes molecules, the mo- bonds there. Life can't start with or without oxygen. can't start in water. There's not many places left in the universe, are there? See, this is what they don't teach in the textbooks. What they're teaching is evolutionism and censoring the science. They talk about DNA. They talk about some good things about DNA. But what they don't teach, the information in one DNA molecule is over 5 billion times more complex than a 300 gigabyte hard drive. They don't talk about the fact that DNA... Information never arises by random chance processes. Information always requires an intelligent center. They talk about things. Oh, we're, we're, we're so closely related to the apes. We're, we're closely related. that We have all this junk DNA in us. They still teach that in schools, even though almost a dozen years ago they discovered there's no such thing as junk DNA. It's all useful. But they still teach it. Why? Because they'd rather teach and promote evolution than science today. <coughs> They talk about mutations. Yes, mutations are very real. Well, how do you know that, Mike? Well, just look at the person sitting next to you. I I like conflict. I I tend to like it. Yes, we all have a tremendous genetic load of mutations. Every one of us. And the geneticists tell us that every new generation is getting about 50 to 100 more mutations. But they don't tell you. Greater than 99.999% of all known mutations are detrimental or neutral. That doesn't leave anything, really, for beneficial, does it? They don't tell us mutations have never been observed to add any new genetic information. They always either distort it or take it away. They talk about how we evolved from ape-like creatures over the millions and millions of years. And they show all these wonderful pictures, but, folks, we never found these pictures. All we find are a few fragments of a skull and some other bones, and then they hire artists to draw the pictures. But they don't talk about all the many mistakes and frauds they've had in there. Like Nebraska Man. Anybody here from Nebraska? Nobody want to... Cl- oh, okay, good, good. They found Nebraska Man. What a wonderful find. They found so much fossil evidence. They were able to recreate the entire Nebraska Man, his wife and family. And that was on display at the University of Nebraska. What a tremendous fossil find. What did they find? A tooth. A single tooth. And from that tooth, they draw these pictures. And then they found the rest of the fossil. They discovered it was not an ape fossil. It was not a human fossil. It was an extinct pig fossil. (laughs) It was the first time a pig ever made a monkey out of a man. And if you were believing in Nebraska man, then what is the end? I'm sorry for this one, but what does the end stand for in their football helmets? Knowledge. Knowledge. You've got to be careful when you say that high school half of them don't get it. <coughs> uh, they don't talk about the fossil evidence. simply does not support evolution. And the pictures are drawings by artists. Oh, but Mike, we're only 2 to 3% difference in our DNA between us and apes. Kind of makes you feel like eating a banana right now, doesn't it? But you know, what they don't tell you is when they came up with those percentages, they hadn't even finished mapping out the entire human genome. We hadn't even studied it yet. This is just something they made up. Now that we've studied the human genome, folks, we're over 15, almost 20% difference in our DNA between us and the ape-like creatures. They don't put that in the textbooks yet, but that's well known. (coughs) In fact, if we were only 3% difference, this is the other number they don't use, if we were only 3% difference, that would be 150 million differences. We're not even close to apes, are we? See, they don't put that in the textbooks, why? Because that's science. They don't want our children to know science today. 90 million, 150 million differences. They talk about dinosaurs. What they don't talk about is where do the dinosaurs come from? See, that's a great question. I've been to museums all over the world. What do I see? Dinosaur bones. I look at all these books. What do I see? Dinosaurs. What am I not seeing? All the thousands of transitions that led up to the dinosaurs. You can't find them in any museum in the world. And every example they put in the textbooks... Looks exactly like a dinosaur already. I don't want to see more dinosaurs. I want to see the transitions. They can't find them. We find petroglyphs, canyon wall cave, park, drawings and carvings, soft dinosaur tissue on dinosaur bones everywhere. Proteins, red blood cells, DNA, carbon 14, all in dinosaur bones, which is powerful scientific evidence. They've only been dead a few thousand years, maybe only several hundred years. See, the scientific evidence is on the side of a creator god not on evolution we have nothing to fear about the science they talk about dating fossils and rocks now i'm not talking boy girl here i'm talking fossils and rocks i know some of you may dated somebody that was like a fossil but that's, i'll let you handle that one <laughs> uh, dating fossils and rocks how do they do that they talk about these are and this is in the textbooks these are exact forms of dating but they don't tell you the dating methods do not give ages none of them do They give a ratio of elements in there. Then you infer an age based on that. The dating methods are all based on assumptions. They don't talk about those in the textbooks. I was at a secular university. Did my talk. And then when you go to secular universities, you know what to expect. When you're done your talk, they want to destroy you. They just want to destroy you and everything they can about the Bible. What a wonderful opportunity. So they ask a question. I answer their questions, and I follow up with a question to them. They can't answer it. So they get frustrated. And finally, a professor stood up and said with a loud voice, Mike, you didn't talk about the dating methods. Why don't you talk about those? And I answered him this way. I will tell you all about the dating methods if you would please talk about the assumptions used. And he sat back down. He wasn't going to do it. Why? He had not taught his students these things were based on assumptions. Now, who did I mimic there in the Bible? I answered a question with a question. Jesus! the greatest teacher of all time. I love to model my teaching after him, not after the way we do it in schools. So I never had to answer the question because he wasn't going to answer mine. (laughs) These dating methods are not consistent. You can date one rock sample by four different methods get four completely different ages, ranging sometimes hundreds of millions of years difference in age. They don't report that in the textbooks either. See, most people that teach about the dating methods have never been to the labs. They don't see what really happens. Then... You can take one rock, again, dated by different methods, and get different ages. And every time we know when a rock was formed, like Mount St. Helens, when we know the rock was formed, we never get the correct age. Those rocks in Mount St. Helens were formed in 1980. But when they were taken to the labs and dated, they ranged from 350,000 years to 2.8 million years old. This stuff doesn't work, folks. We've done that over and over again. Taking rocks of known age, had them dated, and they never get the correct age. What they don't talk about is there are many, many scientific evidences for a young earth. They're just censored out of the books. See, here's what's happening. Our students come to church for two or three hours a week, then they go to the state schools. And know what they learn in the schools? What they learn on Sunday is foolishness. No wonder we're having a lot leave the church today. Something happen, has happened in education in the church and in our Christian schools. We forgot to be different. You see, today, over 60% of our youth are leaving the church. And here are six different studies all came up with the same conclusion. Six independent studies. Over 60% of our youth are leaving the church. And that's going to be less for this church. Because you have a church that, tends, that believes the Bible. But in this community, folks, in this community, you can bank on it. This is nationwide. Sixty percent of the youth in this community will leave the church before they finish school. Let me show you the reasons they came up with. Christianity is shallow and too exclusive. We have too many stories being told from the pulpit. Too many churches that are saying, well, we don't want to teach on that. It's too controversial. And as a result, they're losing their children. Churches appear to be anti-science. Wait a minute. How can that be when we own all the science? It's because we refuse to teach anymore. Learning about evolution in college. Our students are not prepared for this. And your students won't be either. Your children won't be either unless you prepare them. Lack of specific or scientific evidence for a creator. How can that be? He's the creator. He owns it all. College is a hostile environment towards Christianity. That is true. It's openly hostile today. It's not not very like It is open hostility against Christians. You can lose your grade just for being a Christian today. And finally, the teaching of moral relativism. There are no absolutes. What's true for you is not true for me. So our students don't know how to answer those questions. As a result, they walk away. And pretty soon, they leave the church because they lack trust in God's word. We've got to change something in Christianity. I want to show you something here. The percentage of people with a biblical worldview is declining with each generation. This is where we are today. From the baby boomers, my generation, all the way up to the current generation, Gen Z. Each new generation is getting less and less and less that holds to a biblical worldview in this country. What that means, folks, is what we're doing is simply not working. It's not working. I talk to a lot of youth pastors out there. You know what? They're not trained. I know what they get in college. I know what courses they get. But a majority of them are simply not trained. And they refuse to address this issue. They don't know how to address the sanctity of human life. So that's why so many young Christians are having abortions. Nobody's teaching them. Why they're leaving the church? Our youth pastors predominantly now. I know some very good ones. We have some good ones in Boise, and we're working hard on that. Don't know anything about the creation-evolution issue, so they don't touch it. So what happens? Our youth leave the church. See, are we willing to take an interest in our children? That's what it comes down to. See, playing games isn't going to win them. Having all the rock and roll music. And I'm, I'm not the music I heard here today, folks. That was inspiring. I like that. Thank you very much for all that. But I hear this worldly music. And you don't hear the gospel in there. And they think that's going to draw the kids. And I know these youth pastors say, oh, let's have bring in your unsaved friends this weekend. And all we do is show them how we can be like the world. No solid teaching, folks. The church, the parents, and the Christian schools need to get serious about this. See, our Christian schools, methodology-wise, are no different than our public schools. They're using the same methods to teach. Now, I'm going to talk more about that in just a little bit. So I have two relevant questions for you. Will your children trust the Bible when they graduate from high school or from college? The chances are 60% no. Don't put the whole burden on the church, folks. Home is the number one educator right there. Parents, grandparents. Grandparents. And where will your children be 1,000 years from now? Are you preparing them to stand fast against what the world is doing? See, the world is out educating the church today. When I say church in this aspect, I'm thinking all of Christianity, not just the building. All of Christianity. We're being out educated because we haven't got serious yet. So here's our situation. I'm going to wrap it up here. Now, wrapping it up to a pastor can mean 10 or 15 minutes. I've seen that. (laughs) So here's our situation. We're outnumbered, we're outfinanced, and we're surrounded. And there's compromise and surrender within the church ranks. This is not a time to sit back and say, "Whoa, is us. This is an opportunity, people. Because the United States Marine Corps, we are trained that when you're surrounded, you have the advantage, because now you can attack the enemy in any direction. <laughs> Let's go get it. Folks, there's a lot of hills out there. I love challenges. Let's go get these hills and take them down one at a time and start protecting our children. I'll give you a date here. June 6, 1944. Anybody know what happened that date? Which, which one? Yes, D-Day. You know our children, even our children in Christian schools don't know that day. It was a day that changed the entire world. D-Day. The simultaneous invasion of the Americans, the British, and the Canadians at five different beachheads in Normandy, France. I've been to those beaches. Anybody been to those beaches? It's very humbling to stand on those beaches and understand what happened. I've talked to many soldiers that have been in that battle. Those soldiers got trained. But there's no training that could really prepare them for what was about to happen but they spent months training for this invasion. Then they got off the ship and got in their landing vessels. And as those landing vessels were approaching the beaches, the Germans were dropping bombs. Some of them landed in those vessels, and arms and legs were scattered everywhere. Then they hit the beach, and the doors dropped, and the Germans had the machine guns aimed right at those doors. The first three rows dropped dead before they could take their first step. The only way they could get out of there is they had to go over the sides into the deep water with 70-pound packs on their back. And some of them got to the beaches. And when they got to the beach, there was no protection. The guns were coming down on them. The bombs raining all around them. Arms and legs scattered everywhere. But yet those soldiers continued to advance and advance and advance to engage that enemy all the way to victory. The church hasn't even got into the landing vessels yet because we're not trained. How do we expect to win this war with a casualty rate over 60% with our youth? They're not trained. We need to get serious. We need to make a decision. Are we going to protect our children or not? Because whoever owns the education system owns the next generation. That is what's happened to America. Tonight I'm going to be doing a talk on that called The Second Upper Room. Where's that going to be? Heinz? Anacortes, it's called the second upper room. It's going to talk all about what's happened in America, how we lost what we have. We have a newsletter you can sign up for. It tells you what we're doing. talks about our training courses. We have some resources. Uh, Our DVDs are $5 a piece. Our books are $5. The Answers book is a wonderful book to read through. You'll you'll get a lot of great answers. Uh, The Apologetics Forum has many more materials than we have over there. Take a look at those materials, folks. You've got to get some of these materials to start reading them so you can start translating that to your children, especially your young children, because the evolutionists are getting them in the first grade now. We have training courses. This is what our ministry is doing. We offer one-day training courses. We come to your church, and we don't charge your church. What we do is charge by individual student. For instance, our basic creation training class is for teens and above. We charge the adults $45, teens $25. What do you get for that? You get the full day training. You get a 100-page manual. We feed you lunch and snacks all day long. We don't make any money off these things. That's not our intent. Our intent is we want to get the next generation changed. We want to train them. And the best way to do it is train us here. We have a one-day advanced apologetics course where we answer some of the toughest questions like, show me any evidence for the existence of God. It's everywhere, folks. Or how about this one? Here's the number one reason people do not accept Jesus Christ. How can you call God good when he allows evil to continue? We show you how to answer that question in there. We prepare you. Then we have a course we're teaching Tuesday. Tuesday we're teaching this course, Christian Educators Conference. There's two chapters in there on how to make Christian education the best education in the world. How to educate for success. Two chapters in how to do that. (coughs) And then we have our very elite <coughs> five-day creation apologetics teacher's college. I don't believe there's another course in Christianity quite like this course. We're going to hold it next year, August 12th through the 17th, 2019. Where's it going to be held? Ridgecrest, North Carolina, just outside Asheville. We only take 40 students from around the country, college age and above, only 40. Every year we do this. This, this was our fifth year to do this. We have over 20 states represented. People from all over the country come to this because they have not heard or seen anything quite like this. What do you do when you get there? Well, first of all, you've got to pay $570. But what does that get you? See, that $570 gets you the five-day course, 350-page manual. We cover every page in there in the five days. It gets you all your lodging. This is not bunk beds, folks. This is private room, private bath, like a hotel room, and then three meals a day. The true cost for this to us is over $900 per student, so we subsidize the full cost. And what happens when you get there? This will be the most intense course you've ever taken in your life. You not only get all the instruction, but you, get, you have to do two five-minute presentations. I did not say anything over five minutes. Five minutes. I have a stopwatch there. This year, we had one person go three-tenths of a second over five minutes. I took a point off his grade. <laughs> we, we train you how to organize things. We're keeping it to five minutes. Makes it really tough for pastors. <laughs> Sorry. But we know you're kind. <laughs> then you do a three-minute defense presentation. You don't know what the topic's going to be. We've covered it. You get up there, we challenge you, and you've got three minutes to give an organized, accurate response. Then you take a written final exam, closed book. This is our fifth year. You know what our success rate is? 100%. I do not tolerate failure in Christian education. When you come... You will come out of there successful. Or you're doing push ups. (laughs) We do have a push up box in that room marked off with red masking tape. And we have the women's push up record and the men's push up record. (laughs) Don't think you're too old, folks. We had a record this year. We had a gentleman who was 83 years old attend that course, he and his wife, and they both passed that course with the presentations and everything. You're not too old to come to that class. And then, here's something we're doing. We're taking direct action against what's happening to our youth today. We're building two completely new curricula. We think it's going to change the next generation. One's called the Christian Educators Curriculum. It'll be two three-and-a-half-day courses. i polled a lot of Christian school teachers around the country, talked to them individually, and they kept telling me something very common. We don't know how to answer our students' questions when it comes to these topics. And they don't know how to teach it. Why don't they know how to teach it? Because our Christian universities aren't doing their job. They're being academic, but they leave this subject completely away. And many of them compromised it. So they're learning wrong information. So we're we're putting together two, three-and-a-half-day courses for Christian school teachers and youth pastors and homeschool educators that will train them how to answer the questions and be able to teach this in their schools. Then we're developing what's called a Biblical Worldview and Apologetics Curriculum. We're going to build master teachers and master apologists with this. I'm working with some people across the country. There's going to be eight courses in this one, all the way from learning how to speak and teach. We're going to train you how to do that, all the way down to establishing a big worldview, biblical politics, moral issues, witnessing how to witness to the cults, to the very last one called the practicum. Say so in each of these courses, you don't come and listen. You have to get up and demonstrate you can do these things. Our first course is going to be November the 30th this year. It's going to be a three-day course. Communication and teaching skills. You have to come ready to teach because we're going to put you in front of us to see how well you can teach. And I'm pretty strict on that. Speaking, we're going to make sure you can speak coherently, organized. We're going to test you in all these things. You won't stand behind a podium and drone on, you will not pass that class. We train you how to engage an audience. The practicum, this is going to be the toughest course. Because what we're going to do is simulate and put you in real-world situations. All the way to the point, and I've been in these, and several creations have been there. Like being in the streets of New York City, evangelizing. You're going to have six, seven, eight people all surround you. All yelling and screaming and asking you questions. How well you can endure that situation. We're going to make it real-world. That's what we call it, the practicum. When you're done, you're ready to be a master apologist. To go back to your community and teach wherever. That's what we're doing here. This all costs money, folks. We're, we're seeking some fundraising to do this. We know what it costs. We're seeking fundraising because we believe it's going to make a difference in thousands and thousands of children across this country. We cannot do business as usual. You'll saw that line declining. We've got to take a stand somewhere and go after this. I'm going to finish with this. This is the last thing. We're familiar with David and Goliath. Most people are. Israel's getting ready to go to battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines bring out their giant, Goliath. Now, at that point, the Israelites have three options. Number one, they can sit back and say, oh, whatever happens, let it happen. That's called apathy, where a lot of churches are today. That's a killer to churches. Or they're going to wrung their hands and say, "Who is is us who can fight against a giant like this. That's called the pity party, and that's what they really did. Or we can be like David and face that Goliath. Some of you may be facing your Goliath. All throughout history, people have faced Goliaths. They can be financial Goliaths, spiritual Goliaths, health Goliaths. Many people have gone before us and faced their Goliaths. For example, a young boy was burned so bad, the doctor said he would never walk again. His name is Glenn Cunningham. He grew up and set the world record in the mile. He faced his Goliath. He didn't shy away from it. Another young boy was called stupid by his teacher. His mother found out about it and pulled him out of school. His name is Thomas Edison. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to coach a little girl's track team. And our relay team made it to the state meet. Each girl had to run 100 meters. And the day the state meet came, and two of our girls couldn't make it for various reasons. So I had to put two substitutes on our relay team. And as a strategy, a different strategy, they took our fastest girl and put her in the second position. So if the first girl wasn't fast enough, the second girl would get us back in the race, and maybe those competitive juices would help fly there. And they all lined up on the track, and I was something very interesting. We had the four smallest girls on the track. As they lined up, the gun blew, and the first girls took off running as fast as they could. And when our first girl gets ready to hand off to our second girl, she steps on her heel. And the second girl goes to the track. I've seen this happen in major track meets. I've seen it happen in the Olympics. What generally happens, the person who falls down is not very happy. They get up, they're angry. They walk off the track in disgust. Not this little girl. She's been trained. She knows the opposite of winning is not losing. It is quitting. As soon as she hit that track, she got that baton and got to her feet and started running as fast as she could. By the time she handed it off to the third girl, she had gained back something of what she had lost. The third girl got the baton and continued to gain. And the fourth girl got the baton. And they became state champions. They faced that Goliath. What could have been an embarrassing situation turned it into a great new story of victory. Some of you in your Christian walk will drop that baton. But will you have the courage to pick that baton up and run the race to the finish. Thank you. God bless you.